Hi everyone, I'm Mike Novogratz and this is Next with Nova. Let's get going with our first panel of the day, which is actually an incredible conversation that I know we've all been excited and waiting for. The man who needs no introduction, Mike Novogratz. Joining Mike on stage is the wonderful Ale Navia, uh, the co-founder of NFT Now. They have an incredible podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, you're really missing out. They're really not afraid to touch any topic. So Basically, no topics are off limit here. So over to Ale and Mike. Um, is my mic working? Yeah. Uh, good morning, everybody. And like she said, no topic is on fronted. And we're really grateful to be here with Mike. And we're actually going to talk about a lot of things uh, today around crypto, art, collectibles, tattoos. And maybe if there's some type of... Uh, Let's some time on here. We'll bring in some mental health and psychedelic conversation into it because I think psychedelics and mental health are really part of tech and art. So you can't decouple them together. So, Mike, there's been a lot of things happening in the market in the last couple of days. You know, like we have had the tremendous corrections in the crypto space. We've had organizations literally crumble. And let's talk about the state of crypto in general. And then I have a follow-up question around specifically these organizations who pretty much had their Lehman moment, you know, uh, and how crypto really was able to manage that stress test. So what's going on in the markets? Sure. I had, uh, we have 15 new analysts that just got hired and started last week and I sat them down. I was like, you know, I graduated in 1987 and all my classmates Back then, you'd get a job and you get the summer off. Like people were much more decent, and so everyone had the greatest summer of their life because they had a job and they could go to Europe and just have a ton of fun. And they started in September, and a month later, you had the great stock market crash, October nineteenth, eighty-seven, <laughs> and everyone was like, "Oh God!" Um, I was in the army for a couple of years, so when I started, uh, Goldman Sachs' training class had gone from one hundred and twenty people to eleven. <laughs> wow! And I was like, "Guys, you're in that moment in crypto. We've just had." the Lehman Brothers stock market crash or the, um, I mean, the, the, this, the, the, the Black Monday stock market crash or the Lehman Brothers crash of 08 in crypto. And in some ways, you're really lucky because you're 22 years old. You're, you're going to get paid a salary for the next two years. Your, your job is to learn as much as you can, have fun in New York City, and just be sympathetic and empathetic to the people around that are feeling huge amounts of stress. And so we have an industry and a lot of stress. Um, what happened? There was an asset bubble, not just in crypto, in fancy watches, in real estate, in stocks, in growth stocks, in Zoom, uh, you name it, fueled by free money forever, right? A central bank policy that gave us as much money as we could dream of. And when it corrected, uh, I actually sang the song from Beauty and the Beast, Tale as Old as Time. It was a tale as old as time. You saw unbelievable excessive leverage, poor risk management, fraud in some cases, um, really unfortunate behavior uh, amongst a lot of companies, some that we thought were really legitimate. And so, you know, I thought this whole year Bitcoin as kind of my bellwether of where crypto goes would be 30,000, 28,000 on the downside, 50,000 on the upside. No, there were headwinds of the, the Fed, but I also knew there was adoption coming. And man, did we go right through 28,000 in 
And that move from 28,000 to 18,000 was this massive stop loss, this massive deleveraging of these companies that had wild amounts of leverage, much more so than people had thought. And you know, but let's talk about that leverage because it's not just more than like we're talking about like almost what is it 60, 70 billion dollars like literally almost overnight and 40 of that happening from a single source. So, well, so you first had Luna, right, yep. which wiped out, call it, you know, $40 billion of, of value overnight. Um, and then you have, remember, the rest of crypto, I mean, Cardano went down 80%, 90%. So no matter what people owned, it went down. And you had companies like Celsius and BlockFi and many others in that, lending business that got themselves to be 30 to 1, 50 to 1, 100 to 1, 125 to 1 leveraged. That means they had assets and liabilities and this much equity. Now, that's horrible, but what makes it triply, quadruply horrible is they were doing it with customer deposits, with consumer deposits. People had deposited their money at BlockFi and Celsius and lots of places. I don't want to just pick on those two. There were plenty of other people that were in that business. And a lot of those consumers don't read the fine print, right? They thought, hey, I'm putting my Bitcoin there. It's safe. I'm getting extra return. Not I'm lending my Bitcoin to these hedge fund managers who are taking a wild bullish bet and leveraging it up and Tails they win and heads I'm screwed. And, you know, that's what's happened. I think and, it's important to know, can you let the people, let our audience and our community here know why people were rushing to deposit on these things? Because they were providing some great yeah, yield. You know, and this is where we need more financial education in America and in the world, right? You could get 18% on UST or 14% or 12% or 8% when your bank account was giving you 1%. You know, there's never any free lunch. And so people were saying, hey, I'll just put my stable coin or my Bitcoin or my Ethereum or my you name what token on these platforms and get rich. And it worked for a while until it didn't work. And, you know... Now it's a bit of a mess, and, you know, I, I said this yesterday, I have a doctor friend and a wrestling coach friend that had lots of money on Celsius, and they're like, am I going to get my tokens back? And I was like, no, you won't. <laughs> no. You, you will get some check back in three or four years after bankruptcy proceedings, and, you know, it might be 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. And, you know, one guy started crying, and I was like, oh, I hate to see a grown man cry, but it was like a lot of money for his savings, and... And, you know, that's, that's bad for the industry. It's bad for crypto. And so we went through that moment. It's going to take a while to clean up. The good news is when you have moments like this, people learn. And consumers learn. Regulators learn. Like, listen, the regulators were in the offices of lots of these things, and they were trying to do something, but they didn't do anything. And so if the regulator's job is to protect the little guy, they don't get a good grade in this Right. You know, all this talk about regulation, they, they've been looking at crypto since 2014 and haven't done a damn thing. And, you know, we've constantly said, hey, we're not anti-regulation. We want smart regulation to help set the rules. And listen, it's tough. You know, it's, it's tough to be a regular. I'm not saying they had an easy job, but the results aren't great. And so now you're going to see this political machine rise up and say, hey, we need to do something to protect the little guy. 
Uh, and so we'll see what happens coming out of regulation. But we're going to see something. Um, speaking of that, this is a really great aspect. Um, this was a very important stress test for crypto and for the, for the crypto economy in general because we didn't go to zero. Right, <laughs> we're still alive. Yeah, we're still alive, very much so. And uh, it's, hey, guys, listen. When any asset loses over seventy billion dollars of any economy, something is going to go Hold down. On, we, we lost. Let's be really clear. We lost two point three trillion dollars of value. Sorry, guys. I, I was uh, I was we, keeping it conservative, but we, we uh, the real numbers are here. <laughs> we went from a three trillion dollar economy to about a seven hundred billion dollar economy at the lows. So that's a a brutal sell-off. We've bounced now. I think the, the economy is 1.1 trillion. So there's a couple things to know. Like crypto's going nowhere, right? Crypto started because people lost faith in institutions. And when I, I said this yesterday, when you think about, oh, we've got Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, that's, you know, I, I mean, for God's sakes, no one has faith in our political system right now, right? We have lo lost faith in the central bank being able to really balance the economy, right? Partly that's because we're, we're in populist governments at this point. We had a populist right, we have a populist left government. Populism lends to spending more money than you have, not just in the United States, but all over the world. So we have this really unstable world, and crypto is a, uh, is a reaction to that. That's where Satoshi's white paper came from. And so crypto's not going away. When I see the young people, I talk about the 15 young analysts that started, they're 21, 22 years old. They know more about crypto than I do, and they're just <laughs> starting. I'm like, ooh. Uh, and they're coming from the best universities, the coolest places. They're, they're choosing to be in this industry because they're purpose-driven. They think we're going to have to remake the world in a way that works for us. Um, when I think about NFTs, I was just talking to the guy that runs Candy Digital, right? It's a project that we're involved in. Uh, we're still signing up 1,000 to 2,000 new people a day. Uh, and what Candy does is take uh, IP or projects that already exist, right? We just did a thing for Stranger Things on Netflix. It blew out in an hour. And so while volumes in NFTs are down 75 80%, that was because kind of chapter one of NFTs was gambling. It was all about speculation in the same way it was about crypto, right? Chapter two is going to be about collecting and great art. It's going to be about community. It's going to be about gamification, right? There will always be a gambling aspect. Humans love to gamble, like no matter what, like we like to gamble, but it can't be the dominant force. And so it was really promising to me that like the Stranger Things NFT project blew out in an hour. And at the All-Star game, they gave everyone who came, or at least every, some percentage of the people who came, uh, like NFT tickets. And then all of a sudden that creates a wallet. And now there are participants in like the baseball NFT community. And so I don't think this technology is going anywhere uh, but up. I don't think the ethos of crypto is going anywhere. And when I think about the whole debacle of the credit crisis that just happened, Compound and Aave and lots of the DeFi protocols, the on-chain protocols, work just fine, right? The, the problems came in the traditional CeFi companies that played in crypto, where there was lack of transparency. If people knew that some of these credit companies were 100 times leveraged, they probably wouldn't have put their money in. Right? If their balance sheets were on chain, there would have been a risk management bot that said, danger, Will Robertson, danger. <laughs> but they, they weren't. 
in the but same now, way. Now, we- but now let me ask you this question, right? There's a two-part question on that front because even if the even if Robinson, the robot, was like, "Hey guys, attention, attention." How many of us would listen to that robot versus actually keep going, all right? And the second part of my question to that is, how do we rebuild trust with the retail community? Slowly. Listen, greed is, is, is a powerful emotion. You know, I had friends that had bought lots of crypto and had changed their lives. Like guys that I grew up with that didn't make a whole lot of money that all of a sudden had $4 million, $5 million net worth in crypto. And I took a couple of them in October and I shook them and I made them look me in the eye and say, dude, you have to sell half or two thirds of this, right? This is your college education for your kids now. It's your house payments. And like the Fed's going to start hiking rates. We're going to have headwinds and it's not normal to make 200 times your money on things, right? They didn't start with big bets. And they looked me in the eye and said, okay, we'll do it. I said, promise me you'll do it. You know, after the collapse, I called the guy and, you know, he had literally uh, gotten in a fight with his wife that morning. He had gotten so drunk, he passed out in the hallway and he had lost all his money. And I was like, I'm a kind of an inside guy here. I'm telling you. And, and, you, and you looked me in the eye and promised me to sell. And, it, and, and I felt so bad. It realized it's how hard it is for people to let go. Hmm. Um, right? We all look back and say, God, I wish I'd sold more. Right? You know? Jeez. Ah, that squiggle was worth how much? <laughs> yeah. And that's a little bit of human psychology. It's hard. And it's why I'm very conflicted. You know, we talk about the ethos of crypto is the democratization of finance. And I fundamentally believe that everyone should have equal access to invest. That doesn't mean I think everyone should be an investor, right? It's really hard to be a good investor. It takes training. It takes pain. It takes knowledge. It takes practice. And so to think you can show up. A lot of failure. A lot of failure. (laughs) To think you can show up and be like, oh, I'm going to be a great investor. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't invest some of your money, but for people to have 110% of their net worth in their own investing scheme in one or two plays is is insanity uh, with no risk management. And so, you know, after the lunar crash, you heard a lot of people say, oh, my, my life savings is gone, I'm ruined. And I'm like, who would ever advocate having more than a couple percent in any one stock, any one cryptocurrency, because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to bet on things that go to zero. And so I think part of this is the world got caught up in this mania and it just felt so easy to make money, right? Buy this NFT and it goes up and then, you know, and, and people don't like to let go of profits. Hey, amen to that. Who doesn't love to secure the bag? Um, from that point of perspective, let's bring this up to a more positive outlook. I think let's look towards the future. I think you are an incredibly visionary, and I think you've been on the pulse for a lot of these technologies ever since you got into crypto in 2012. What narrative is going to spark the next bull run that's going to help us onboard the next 100 million users? It's a great question. So go back to like the primitives, right? So what is Satoshi why did Satoshi write this white paper? There's a macro reason and there's a technological reason, right? The macro reason is Satoshi saw populism coming. Populist governments spend more money than they have, right? So the world had broadly after 1989, it all shifted to some form of free market capitalism. Capitalism tends towards inequality, trends towards inequality, it always does. And as the world got more and more unequal, 
societies tend towards populism. How do we fix inequality? We fix it by, hey, let's pay everyone's student loans. Let's, let's spend more money. And it's a rational response. And so Satoshi saw it happening. How are we going to trust governments that spend more money than they take? Right? When I graduated from college, America's debt to GDP was about 40%, which means, you know, if our total GDP was 12 trillion, our debt was whatever, four trillion. Today, America's debt to GDP is 140%. So that's that's in 35 years. That means my kids and my grandkids are screwed. Period. They, you know, the only way you get out of that is to inflate the debt away or to restructure the debt. Both really horrific. Uh, outcomes. And so Satoshi saw that and wrote this white paper saying, I'm going to create this currency called Bitcoin or this store of value called Bitcoin that is anti-inflation. More importantly, that became the first private property on the internet, right? Before Satoshi, there was no private property on the internet, right? Bitcoin was the first private property on the internet. If you think about John Locke in 1689, who wrote, like, private property is the foundation of capitalism, there was no capitalism on the internet until there was Bitcoin. Well, the same technology that allows Bitcoin to be unique, right, so I can't control, copy, paste, and make tons of them, allows artists to create in a digital form for the first time without their work being counterfeited, right? And so to be able to transfer value and know it's unique is an amazing breakthrough. And so I would talk about NFTs in 2014. I was like, ah, oh, the artists are going to start. And then it didn't really happen until really last year. Mm-hmm. And then it exploded. Um, and now you have this new generation of artists, of creators, who have this medium that they didn't have before that can make really cool shit that mixes art and music and experience and have the world believe it's unique. And uniqueness is a belief system, right? It can be proved mathematically because it's on this freaking blockchain and here's it's, <laughs> right? But grandma's not looking or, or you're not looking at the blockchain and understanding how it's unique. You've learned to believe already in a short period of time that if we say there's only 10,000 crypto punks, everyone believes there's only 10,000 crypto punks. No one has to do the math. When I started selling Bitcoin, I swear to God, I would have to tell people about the Byzantine general's problem and the double spend problem. And I'm not a computer science guy. I sound like an idiot. I'm trying to talk to computer science people. And everyone wanted to understand how can it be that it can't be controlled, copy, pasted, right? And with NFTs, people already believe it. And so we've already made huge progress. And so now it's, can we use this technology? Can we use these platforms to create things that people care about? They care about, like, when you, when you think about generative art, right? I think generative art will have legs. The prices went up, they've come down. But if it's ringers or fidenzas or, or squiggles, they evoke an emotion. They evoke the sense of wonder. The same way when I walk through Christie's, I'm looking at, I like that painting. Um, right? If you've ever collected art, there's something emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And so forget the speculative frenzy that they were all in. Why I think those three in particular will be worth a lot of money in 10 years and 15 years is because there's a narrative behind them. There's a community behind it. In the same way there is uh, you ever hear Dimitri Cherniak talk about generative art? You're you're sold. Amen. Right. Hundred percent. Like immediately. And how do you think Picasso became Picasso? There were people that 
there's gallerists and museum historians and people that tell the narrative and tell the story. So we look at it, we understand it, right? And we're like, wow. And that creates the community that cares about it. And so in the, in the art world, the great projects are going to be the same type great projects you saw in, in normal art. In the collectible world, it's going to be very different, right? There's going to be consumables, right? I used to collect baseball cards. I didn't collect baseball cards because I thought they'd all go up in value. I collected them because I loved baseball. Uh, and so you're going to have NFTs that are consumerable, that people use and think are cool. You're going to have NFT clothing. So we'll have parties when we come with our... I saw just today, Google's was... There was a uh, story in the, the paper about they've got their VR glasses. Yeah. Remember they had Google Glass a few years ago? It fell on its rear end. Well, now they got the next version. looks pretty cool. You can actually like have a speech and you can read it. Uh, and so the technology is going to shift where unique stuff and digital stuff becomes more uh, ubiquitous. I, and you brought up on a, an excellent point with NFTs and being private property and being able to capitalism. I personally... I was a fan. I'm a I'm a huge art like art collector, novice, you know, things of that nature. But it was I live a very transient lifestyle, very nomadic lifestyle, right? My wife and I, we live in New York, Jackson Hole, Miami. We travel the world, right? And it's like when we want to buy art, we're like, where do we store it, right? And so it's like when NFTs came about, it became this incredible feature where we can actually own a piece of culture, a human story, a narrative, and be part of a community that we actually just stored it in our pocket. If you have a cold storage or if you have not, uh, a hot storage, you know, you can we store it on the cloud, wherever it is, but I don't recommend that. I think highly security, uh, get your cold storage aspects. But I want to speak to you about NFTs and your collection and the movement that is doing for culture, because I think for the first time in history, NFTs were the first technology that the adult industry did not adopt first. And it's, and it's very important to note this, okay? Because if you actually look at the internet history, the technologies were always adopted by the adult industry first. Payments, HD, 4K, 8K, compression algorithms. But NFTs were adopted by the, the art community, the creator community, the culture community, the narrative. And I think that that, that narrative was really critical to the mass adoption of crypto, right? Because everybody, crypto has been around, but in 2017 with ICOs and everything, the, the bull run and then the, the, the crypto winter that we experienced from 17 to 19. But what is exciting about NFTs? So, so last year during that layer one boom, when, all, when Ethereum really took off and all the other layer ones, Solana... Uh, I would say NFTs are the killer app of the blockchain. Right? Everyone would say, well, we have this blockchain. We understand how it works, but who's going to use it? And it was really NBA Topshop where we sold, not we, you know, Dapper Labs sold uh, video clips of basketball players from games. And they gamified it, right? They put it in packs and you get one that's a more rare one and it's, everyone got excited. And it lit the world on fire for a little bit of time. And I remember thinking, wow, that is the real world, i.e. basketball, coming into the crypto world. And we hadn't had a lot of people. Like crypto had been this pond, and all of a sudden now we had, you know, guppies becoming frogs or whatever, how that works, jumping out of the pond. And we were interacting with the real world. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden every brand started saying, hmm, 
It's a way to connect to my community. And so this combination of people who's a, you know, a wonderful dude and a, and a fun guy to hang out with, uh, coming up with his 5,000, 5,000 days, right? His 5,000 pictures and selling from some amazing amount. And then there was this real strong statement. It was, Hey, the crypto world's its own community and it can support its artists. And so we've got crypto world supporting its own community and we have the real world now interacting with it. And I actually think it was more the real world interacting with it that lit everything on fire. That's awesome. Great perspective on that. I wanted to ask you from that, pers- from that angle, do you, do you see NFTs decoupling themselves from crypto? So if you look at what's happening right now in NFTs, right, volumes are down big. And I, to be honest, I don't follow this like minute to minute and day to day. Things like Stranger Things or baseball kind of brands are that are NFTing things and kind of coming up with cool projects are still taking on and growing. Like I said, Candy is growing in each of their, you know, they're going to come up WWE and I'm sure the WWE fans will become NFT collectors because they love Hulk Hogan and The Miz and all the other I think the Miz is not even. A guy I love anymore. Triple H. You know, yeah. Triple H is uh, my guy. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I can't believe I mentioned the Miz. <laughs> um, um, and then some of the beautiful, you know, the 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 kind of more marquee projects, if it's Squiggles or, or even CryptoPunks, uh, and and those are still going to be around and and have sustainability. A lot of the speculative ones are are down and might not come back, uh, and so. I think you'll see that grow for a while, Mm -hmm. but I really think the next big vector is going to be in games. Gaming, 100%. Uh, And we were just at uh, the IPO of Face Clan this morning. Uh, Shout out to Face Clan, everybody. They're an incredible gaming company. They're very cult like. We were actually having a conversation about this. What do you think gaming is going to do uh, to this market? So, you know, John Lynn spoke yesterday. I missed his talk, right? mythical games, uh, full disclosure, Galaxy's an investor. I've always said intellectually it made sense that games would have parts that you could keep and, and you know, would be transferable. And that's why, you know, the blockchain would mean a lot to gaming. And people are like, no, 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 no. And now people all believe it, it will happen. It will happen once blockchain-based game companies develop cool games, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. uh, people love gaming. Gaming's on a 20-year bull market. You go to Saudi Arabia, you go to China, you go to anywhere. They're game maniacs. Um, and it it's this, the takeoff moment will be when our community of, you know, blockchain-based game developers develop games that people get addicted to, that people love. And I think that's coming you know, this, yeah. remember, a lot of these companies are a couple years old and, and you're having to... I, I remember talking to Strauss Zelnick, who was like one of the gurus of gaming. This might have been two or three years ago. And he was like, ah, we'll never have blockchain-based games. And I'm sure, you know, 12 months later, he, 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 he probably changed his mind because <laughs> smart guys change their mind when the facts change. Amen. Um, but so it's, it's such a young industry. We got to give it some time. That's awesome. Okay, let's get personal here. How many NFTs do you own and which one is your personal favorite? Let's get, let's get to it. I don't own that many. So when I started Galaxy, I said everything I do is going to be in Galaxy, in crypto. So there was, a, there was no uh, 
chance that people would say, oh, he's got it in his personal account and he's not in his company account. So I just wanted to be kind of above board and clear. And so I personally, the only NFTs I personally own are things that people have given to me. And lots of them are bad images of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really some bad cartoons. My kids have a field day. Um, Galaxy has bought some cool NFTs, right? We've got Squiggle, we've got CryptoPunks got a bunch of crypto punks. Our employees have an amazing collection. Richard Kim has got one of the best generative art collections. You can follow him on lots of different mediums. Um, and so in some ways, for a guy who talked about it in 2013 and 14, who had literally all those generative artists at my house for a criminal justice thing once, and they were showing me their stuff, and I was like, I love that Fidenza. I love this. Uh, I'm like the big fool that bought none of them myself. <laughs> Um, and on that front, what is Galaxy, since everything's going to be through Galaxy, what is Galaxy doing initiatively during this bear market to support the NFT marketplace? So one of Galaxy's best businesses is called Galaxy Interactive. And Sam Engelbart, who was here yesterday and there last night, and Richard Kim run this fund. Uh, we're closing our third fund. It's the only time we've taken outside money. We had two $300 million funds, and now we're raising a $600 million fund that specifically invests in gaming, the metaverse, and NFT projects. And so it's got a more narrow focus than most crypto venture funds. Um, we've invested, I think, in over 80 companies in the space uh, and really believe that that trajectory is where it's at. The nice thing about having a portfolio is you can connect company A to company B. Uh, and say, hey, one of the things I'm convinced at is when you think of companies like iHeartRadio, like they have more listeners uh, times a thousand than people that were playing on Decentraland. Uh, and so when you think about where, where the metaverse is going to grow, it might grow organically from things like Decentraland, but it's much more likely to grow on these communities that already exist where they then build a metaverse that's an open source metaverse and dump their people in and convert their people over. And so when we think about the Korean boy band, right? BTS, it's a cult following. And so as you, you can convert their user base into a BTS metaverse or a K-pop metaverse, all of a sudden that's how we're going to bring in the next hundred million users. Um, and I think that's the next couple years it's going to happen. And so, because we're seeing all those companies say, hey, this is real technology and it's working and the displays are changing so quick, right? If you look at even, you know, the Oculus is five times better than it was two years ago. 100%. Um, we're going to have the VR glasses, the screens, the, the ubiquity of living in the digital world is, is accelerating. I've, I would ask every person to pick out their phone at the end of the day and I would bet the average of the room's screen time is five hours. <laughs> and if you were under... If you're lucky. If you're, yeah, under, right. if you're under 25, it's probably nine hours. Uh, mine's like six and a half. My kids are like, Dad, you're like a teenager. Um, right? Yeah, we no, live, it's we, live, we live in our we world. We live like, in the metaverse. Yeah, we live in the metaverse. I think uh, my co-founder, Matt Medved, tweeted this really uh, like interesting take a, a few weeks ago. And he was like, why are people rushing to buy NFTs? And he said, because we spend more time looking at screens than we do at walls. Right? And it's just natural. Right? And it thinks from that capacity. Now, from that perspective... And what I'm hearing from you is that 
culture is going to play a pivotal role in adoption of the next 100 million users. We're talking about, you mentioned iHeartRadio, music, you mentioned art, you mentioned uh, culture, pop culture, fashion, these whole things. But I want to bring this conversation now into a personal narrative that you and both I are very passionate about, and it's mental health. And I think it's important to speak to this in this space because in the space, this is a 24-7, 365 there's no breaks. You know, people drop some amazing NFTs at midnight on a Friday night, you know, like things of that capacity. It's nonstop, ongoing, ongoing. What are you seeing in our marketplace from a mental health perspective? And what are some of the things that we can actually do from a cultural perspective to really bring this narrative front and center? Yeah. So step back, starting point, there is a mental health crisis in America and in the world. The rate of, you know, teen suicide, the rate of depression, the rate of anxiety has gone straight up. And not just in younger generations, but it's pronounced in younger generations. Uh, one of the statistics that blows my mind is that 30% of boys or men between the ages of 18 and 30 report not having sex within a year. When I was an 18-year-old, that number was 6%. And so we have this alienated culture hmm. where people aren't having sex. That's a very strange thing. It's never happened before in our society. Do you think the role of the metaverse is driving that a little bit? I think there's lots of things that have gone into it. Um, it's the inequality in our country. It's the, it's the social media and the shaming. So the dating apps which are really cool for some people are unbelievably painful for others. If you look at a classic dating app uh, and you look at 50 women and 50 men, 45 women will pick the same five guys wow. and they will always pick them based on uh, socioeconomic advancement, right? Hey, is that guy going to take care of me? I mean, this is, it sounds, it sounds sexist and that's the stats. So if you're those other guys that constantly get swiped left or right, whatever, get rejected, you feel it. It's why, quite frankly, every single school shooter is the same person. Is that 18 to 24-year-old, you know, guy that's quoted incel that's that's been, you know, disenfranchised or alienated. From that perspective, from the mental health and the pandemic that we're having, right, 2020, corona, this whole thing, there was a lot of blends here. But I want to speak to the technology piece, uh, but from a different angle. Nature creates some of the best technologies that we have, right? We don't need to uh, screen. We don't need silicon. We don't need connectivity. We don't need internet to speak to technology. I, I know you're an incredible advocate. You and your wife are incredible advocates of mental health, and you guys are very public, open about psilocybin, MDMA, and the work that MAPS is doing. Let's talk about the role of psilocybin in your personal life and in the role of mental health. Yeah, so I, I was an early investor in a company called Compass Pathways and another called Thai Life Sciences, um, partly because some guy came and pitched the idea and I was like, hmm. And I did a little homework. And as I talked to all these doctors that were doing these studies, they were like, it works. And it's been around for so long, we know it's not dangerous. And so I got a real sense of confidence that over some period of time, it will get FDA approved. And having been on that journey now for five or six years, uh, interesting enough, alongside my wife, um, I'm more and more confident. Uh, I'm actually more confident that we will use these alternative 
plant-based medicines and other substances to help with depression, PTSDs, anxiety, and all kinds of mental health issues that aim about almost anything. Now, does that mean the companies I'm invested in will all make money? No, I don't, you know, how, how this stuff goes through the system and gets approved is, is very complicated. But I have seen, and I've done podcasts with people, people's whole life changed by dealing with childhood trauma or dealing with adult trauma, uh, you know. And so while I'm not a doctor, I just, just my intuition is pretty clear that the psychedelic industry uh, and listen, it has the same risk the crypto industry has. When you have a, something, bubbles happen around things that are going to change the world. So once you start doing your homework and psychedelics, you're like, oh, this works, and it's going to work. And so it brings in lots of energy, lots of money, sometimes charlatans, sometimes fringe players. And, you know, the risk is it goes too fast, too far, and people do stupid things, and then the regulators get really nervous. And that's what happened in the 70s. There's an amazing documentary right now. Uh, Michael Pollan, who's kind of the guru of the space, wrote a book, How to Change Your Mind. And uh, there's a doc on Netflix, which I advocate everyone watching. And it kind of takes you through five episodes of this whole movement and where it came from, where it's going. But this isn't like, you know, hippie, dumb, all cool. This is a really serious approach to how you're going to shift mental health. Um, one other plug, because I just feel I need Please, to. Please, plug away, brother. <laughs> my, so my, my wife uh, healed her own trauma through meditation and, and this long journey. And she's now, she presented yesterday, uh, created this VR space called Maloka, where you go in and you meditate. And, and meditating in VR actually is more effective than meditating outside of the way your brain tricks itself. Uh, and it's gamified, and now they're going to have, like, NFTs in it. And, and so it was so interesting. My wife and I had never anything to do at all professionally. And yesterday we were on the same, you know, panel and not the same panel, but the same conference. And I was like, how in God's name after 29 years did that happen? Hey, nature, but I also yeah. recommend you guys, if you have an Oculus, it's, Maloka, it's free, download it or on your phone. Really cool way to spend 10 minutes a day just calming yourself down. That's really great. From that perspective, Mike, what do the next generation of artists and creators need to take into consideration when coming or engaging with plant medicine and psychedelics? Because I think a lot of creators and a lot of artists in the NFT and the crypto space look to the psychedelics for inspiration for this. And there's a lot of escapism in psychedelics, you know, as much as they can heal, it can also create escapism. What would be your piece of advice and your guidance to creators or people who are interested or kind of curious around psychedelics as to how to engage with them from a starting point? So like, like any drug, uh, it can be used for good or it can be used for, for less good. And so the new science is showing up that what psychedelics do, the magic is they open these things called critical periods or open periods in your brain, not during the experience, but in some time afterwards, uh, where you're much more open to learn things. It's like, why does a kid learn Russian when he's three, but when he's 30, there's no chance I'm going to learn Russian. Um, so your brain opens up. So when your brain opens up, you're vulnerable. And so it's, it's to be in safe places. It's to, to do this in ceremony, not in party spirit. Um, and it's to do it surrounded by places that you're supported. If you think about like the, the, the reverse side and where things go bad, Charles Manson, right, the, the evil murderer, he gave all those people tons of LSD and they were so vulnerable. He, he had them on LSD all day long. They were so vulnerable. Then he was like, dude, go kill Sharon Tate. And they all did. 
Uh, and so it's not that these plants have a morality of themselves, but they do open your brain up. And so lots of great artists, lots of great scientists, Jonathan Haidt, who's one of the most conservative, uh, brilliant writers about sociology, came out after Michael's book and said, ah, I feel liberated because I can actually explain to people that my best work came after I did these LSD trips 15 years ago. And we were like, Jonathan Haidt? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I would say take it seriously. Uh, when I say seriously, you know, right guides, right set, right setting. Um, but, you know, and, and again, it's, it's being legalized in some states, not legalized in others. You know, you're still in this gray zone. Uh, the stuff we're doing is all, uh, from an investment perspective, is trying to get it through the FDA so that insurance pays for it and you can actually scale it. So what I'm hearing from you is that setting setting is incredibly important. I'm hearing that your intentionality around the use is also incredibly important. And also something that I'm hearing through the lines is the role of integration and the importance of integration. 100%. In Fantastic. Um, last question, I think that... Otherwise, it's like going to an amusement park. Like you go to King's Dominion and you ride the Rebel Yell and you come back and you're like, well, that was cool. And nothing changes. Yeah. You got to do the work. You know what I mean? It's like, I think the journey is part of that. Um, from that perspective, I feel like we're going to see a wave of people coming out of the psychedelic closet, right? So many of our friends are so kind of like society, um, fearing of cancel culture, right? Of coming out and saying, hey, I've used this or this creation. So I'm, I'm really excited to see that society is becoming more and more welcoming and more warming to these um, new prolific findings in scientific studies and academia. Um, but before we close it off, I think there's an important question that a lot of people would like to know. What, and what asset are you bullish on for the next six months? And what's the next asset that you're bullish on for the next decade? So for the next decade, let me give you the macro story. From 1989 to 2016, or maybe even to last year, we were in what we would call the great moderation. Inflation coming down, business cycles being synchronized. In 2007, at the Jackson Hole on, you know, conclave when all the central bankers of the world get together, they literally wrote a paper saying, we've, we've ended the business cycle. We've killed inflation forever and how wrong they were. And now we're entering this period of the anti-great moderation, right? We're reversing globalization. China's going to build its own supply chain. We don't trust China anymore. I spent seven years of my life in Asia building bridges between China and the U.S., and I'm like, oh, they've been shattered, All right? So we were going together with China, now we're pulling apart. You see the same thing with Russia. Uh, Europe is fracked. Is, 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 is trying to stay together, but they've got an economic system that is going to put huge pressure on it. Uh, Africa has a population bounty or bomb coming, but 100% of the population growth of this planet will come from Africa in the next 15 to 20 years. So they'll go from a billion two to two billion people. They need unbelievable infrastructure and governance change, or it's going to be a migration crisis that we've never seen. And so we're moving into this era of I think, high macro volatility. We're going to go back to maybe what was normal before where you have inflation real high and then real low and then real high. And so as an investor uh, and as a citizen, it's much more difficult to navigate. And so my old job being a macro investor for the next five years is 10 years is going to be the most interesting job. 
And as a normal investor, it's going to be really difficult, right? This idea that we just buy, buy stocks and they go up and bonds go to, you know, yields go to zero is over. Um, from a crypto perspective, it's that environment is why I love having a core in Bitcoin, right? So from the next 10 years, I really do think Bitcoin has a chance to continue to appreciate as it gets adoption. From the next three months, the most interesting thing that's happening in crypto is the merge. And I think the merge is a narrative mm -hmm. for Ethereum. It gets people excited. It gets you a reason to talk to people. Remember, we're still in such a young industry that most of crypto's success is about adoption. It's about storytellers convincing people that this matters, right? Bitcoin doesn't have inherent value in the same way gold doesn't have inherent value. You could take all the gold that's ever been mined in the history of this planet, from Timbuktu to Egypt to the Mayan civilizations to the stuff you find on 47th Street, melt it down and it would fit in this room. And that's worth $10 trillion? That's insanity, right? Gold is a belief system, right? Bitcoin is a belief system. The belief system comes from people telling the story, from other people saying, hey, I believe in that. And so Bitcoin specifically is a belief system. So it's adoption. It's getting more people to believe. So it takes an army of storytellers. All of crypto because it's so early, still is about a belief system. And so the merge gives people something to talk about. Listen, in the long run, other than Bitcoin, crypto is going to have to show utility. We're going to have to use it, use it for a reason, use it for, for a purpose. Um, Bitcoin's purpose is to be a store of value. Others' purposes are going to be very different. But in the early stage, you've got to get people to believe. And so the storyteller is a really important part of, of the whole space. And it can't be one or two guys. Right, it has right. to be like NFT now, for example, yes. right? Like yes. there it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an army, and then and, and what was so cool when I I, I would go to these conferences, say, hey, your job is to figure out how to help, right? In if you're in a if you're in an NFT community, if you're in the Bitcoin community, and it's why, you know, I have this jacket with all these tribal patches, uh, and I wear it kind of as a joke because it also looks good. My daughter didn't think so. She was like, Dad, that's an ugly jacket. I was like, Thanks. Um, it's a really tribal tribal space. I would love it to be tribal collaborative as opposed to tribal competitive. You know? But, but ca capitalism is competition. Yeah, you know I, I mean, I, like, healthy, right? You, like, you got to win and help win. I agree. Right? And so for, um, from that perspective, where can people find you and they want to interact with you? Is it Twitter? Is it Instagram? Where can people hear some of your thoughts? I am on Twitter at, at Novogratz and I have a podcast called Next with Novo, um, which I do periodically, which I have a lot of fun with. Uh, where I just interview people that I've had this amazingly cool uh, and privileged life where I meet all these cool people. And so I said, let's bring those people on and just let them share their stories. Um, and I have an Instagram, but it's mostly Twitter. All right. They're an incredible storyteller. So I appreciate uh, everything on your time. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you can find him online. Thank you again for everything. Thanks, guys. <laughs>